Hey folks, John here from AS for Alcoholic again. Today's conversation is with Jules Posner. Um, we talked about how weed was his gateway drug. It really was. Um, we discussed the seeking of validation from others, the way that one can come from a godless background in San Francisco and find a spiritual path to uh, to finding themselves feeling better, healthier, stronger, mentally, spiritually, and realizing that there's a way forward, that there is a community there, and that regardless of what program that you're in, um, it's available. It was really good, and it was a really good reminder of me to uh, to find that gratitude, find that community, find that service. So yeah, without further ado, here is my conversation with Jules Posner. First and foremost, thank you for uh, offering to do this. I know it's not always easy to, you know, strangers on the internet, although we're, we have a mutual friend. Um, uh, Whitney was nice enough to uh, give me your name and said you might be interested in doing this. And thank you so much for doing that, for doing Thanks this. For me. I appreciate it. Looking forward to it. Um. <clears throat> So my my big question for everybody at the very beginning is always, you know, how far back do you remember alcohol being in your life? And not just your first drunk or your first drink, but if it was something that you grew up with or not at all. Uh, I definitely grew up around alcohol. My dad is a musician. Mm -hmm. and, uh, I was born in 1987. So he was a part of the alternative rock scene in San Francisco in the early nineties. And he was a, a drinker, but, you know, reflecting back on it, he actually was or has been sober most of my life. Um, not through any uh, specific program, but I could get more into that later. However, um, yeah. So I do remember him like drinking uh like and taking us to like work parties because in the end like while he was making his way in the music industry he also worked in bars he was a bar manager sure. he was a doorman he was kind of just making ends meet um you know trying to contribute in uh the best way he could with a limited uh professional skill set um, right. and still trying to focus on his dreams while taking care of a family and um so you know he would like drink beers and stuff uh one of my earlier memories though was uh we were at an A's game with one of his uh friends and yeah I just remember them like drinking a little bit of Jack Daniels in the car before they headed into the game and I was really curious about it and they actually let me taste like a little cap full of it and it was disgusting and they thought it was the funniest thing in the world right um, and i know it wasn't like anything sinister but it was just like yeah like kids want to do what adults do but he has no idea how gross this is about to be mm. and so they got kind of a kick out of it and that was my first like personal experience with alcohol um but yeah i didn't my dad stopped drinking around the time i was nine years old uh he got sick and he has an autoimmune disorder and he, he 
wasn't able to drink anymore and he stopped kind of cold turkey <clears throat> and was always pretty open about drugs and alcohol with me in terms of uh he definitely didn't want to advertise them as fun things to do and he would go into detail about kind of what they're about and what they're like and the negative effects they can have on you um <clears throat> really the positive but that's kind of understandable sure and uh but he didn't really hold back you know he tried his best to be truthful about drugs and, and kind of understood that it's probably going to come up at some point and he always considered himself to be like a relatively young dad um he wasn't that young though i think he was 31 when i was born and i'm the youngest of two mm -hmm. uh, which I mean, to me, I'm 34. So like, I still can't imagine having a kid. I don't have kids. Right. They control the kitten right now. And, <laughs> but I wouldn't say he was a young dad, but I definitely think he was not the most mature dad. Um, he was very youthful. Um, he had his dream he was chasing. He was a very like playful and fun and animated and spiritual kind of hippie dude who came of age in like the 70s glam scene in new york uh and you know he was just a an odd fellow uh so but you had a very open or i shouldn't say like you said he talked about it openly it was not something that was hidden or it was not um admonished necessarily growing up um yeah. well when i started dabbling um, so when did you start dabbling high school like early, halfway through high school um and i really was just mostly dabbling with weed um i didn't really have much of an interest in drinking and if i did uh it was like i needed a quick delivery so i can like get where i needed to be i didn't want to like be nursing a beer or anything mm. because that's still thought alcohol was pretty gross and i still had that memory of tasting jack daniels in the parking lot at the oakland coliseum so i never had a taste for alcohol but i and i say this when i share in meetings too is that the, the stage was always set for me to become an alcoholic um and i think the way i drank in high school like looking back on it and like kind of the need for the quick delivery so I can get drunk fast um, definitely was a precursor to what would come later on in my life. Right. Um, but the other side of it was too, was I was really into smoking weed and I like, I understand the, uh, how lame it is when people can call it a gateway drug and, uh, but for some people it can be, and for me it was. Um, mm -hmm. I understand uh, that that's not a very popular sentiment all the time, but that's how my story started really, was I smoked weed alcoholically. I could not get enough. I The second I really got a taste for that, I was, I was hooked, but it was also just like, I didn't stop smoking once I started until it was like time to go to bed and I couldn't stay up any longer. Um, so it definitely, and it also 
sort of my life kind of revolved around acquiring it, getting more. It wasn't legal when I was younger. So Mm -hmm. it was always like, how do we get this? We got to link up with the guy and uh, a lot of planning went around it. It became like very ritualistic and also just something I really couldn't wait to do. Uh, Like when I was done with my responsibilities, I would indulge, but it really, after a while was uh, when I had less and less responsibilities, it just became indulging. Um, So weed is, was really where I got Got my start in the drinking game. Well, yeah. And I've known a lot of people like that. And I was never, I was kind of adverse to it in that I didn't get what I needed from it. I tried it, but I was always around people who were obsessed with it, how to get it. And and all of those patterns of thinking that I, for whatever reason, didn't see in myself, but was doing the exact same thing with cheap whiskey and cheap beer, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um. And so this is, and is this, is this like you said, high school age? Yeah. So I was an athlete in high school and I did take that fairly seriously. Uh, so we definitely were conscientious of only doing it on the weekends. We had Saturday morning practice, but then after we got out of practice, we all went home and showered and we reconvened and that was like kind of our night mm-hmm. to really go out and, uh, you know, kind of cut loose. It was, uh, we were a pretty serious group of baseball players and, uh, we had a pretty rigorous schedule. Not that we were super focused on academics, but, you know, lifting and long practices and independently practicing, uh, like Friday night, sometimes we would go out, but Saturday night definitely was like the night because we were off Sunday. We had time to recover. And uh, so I feel like in high school, I was just more of a weekend kind of casual user. Well, you uh, still had these other responsibilities and these things were were important. And, yeah. and, and, oh, yeah. and I think too, and correct me if I'm wrong, but we often will see that sort of cutting loose and that excess as acceptable because all of the other things are in place. I am fulfilling all of my duties. I am fulfilling all of my responsibilities. So I can go out and maybe, this is how I felt, is I could get blackout drunk. And that was not a problem one, two nights a week because I was taking care of business the rest of the time. So there was no problem. Mm -hmm. Now, in retrospect, looking back, I certainly would have to say like, maybe it wasn't the best use of my time, but how are you going to tell a child that, you know? Yeah. And I think my parents like knew what was going on. Cause I never, I pretty much always slept over at one of my friend's houses on Saturday night because this, at this point in time, my dad was still pretty ill and <clears throat> I was pretty conscientious that he had a very negative outlook on drugs and alcohol. And mm-hmm in a way I was kind of trying to be respectful of that by not bringing it around him. So like returning home late on a Saturday night, like smelling like vodka from a plastic bottle and like blunts, countless blunts. Uh, that was the big thing in San Francisco at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of blunt smoking. Cause a lot of our uh, local rap heroes were all about it. And yes. uh, we, uh, and I would just stay at a friend's house, but I think they kind of knew like, yeah, he's like out 
every weekend. He's 16. He's probably not doing things we want him to be doing. <laughs> time, at least we know, like his friends' parents. We know that he still takes baseball seriously. So, like, he's not leaving Earth. He's still right grounded at this point. So you so, were still having fun. This was great. This was awesome. This was yeah, a good time. I was, I was having a blast too because I had a, like a pretty tumultuous first relationship in high school that really pulled me away from socializing with my friends and making mm. new friends. I didn't have a very healthy uh, social relationships outside of my romantic relationship in high school up until that ended. So this was also like kind of a celebration of like being back in with the boys again. And we all really got along with like other cliques and other, oh, sorry, and other sports teams. So a lot of like two of my main friends were also on the football team. So we hung out with the football team a lot and all of their extended friends groups. So we would have like these big kind of like 20 30 people at the park just like hanging out like wearing our letterman jackets like doing that whole thing and it was a really good time and it was like really uh fun for me to be able to reconnect with my friend group and make new friends but also there was that kind of underlying alcoholic thing going on where i was making up for lost time mm -hmm. i didn't party with them a lot of my sophomore and junior year so and I was always the runt of the litter uh in that group so I also like had this like kind of chip on my shoulder like I had to use the most like I was drinking as much or more than the defensive yeah. lineman on the football team and I was what position did you play uh I played outfield mostly I started okay. in infield I'm a little smaller so everybody wanted me to play second base and naturally being a little bit rebellious and contrarian i was like i want to play outfield and everyone was like you can't you're not a good enough hitter if we're being honest and i was like well i'm gonna get good at hitting and i'm gonna be an outfielder and then when i got to high school my team was actually really good and we had a pretty stacked infield and i was not uh one of the better infield options so by necessity i moved to the outfield because I wanted to play. I wanted to crack the starting lineup. And that was the only way I would do it was if I learned a new position. So right. starting outfield. Uh I started learning how to play outfield in my my sophomore year. Um because I was kind of worried I wasn't gonna grow that much anymore. I'm only five six and I went into high school. I was four eleven when I was a freshman. So I was really concerned that I needed to do as much as possible to make myself useful to teams. And I was on a summer team uh, from eighth grade before freshman year, ninth grade, uh, where I actually started to learn a little bit of outfield because the coach just, he, he was a tough coach uh, and he would hit ground balls so hard at you from so close that I was just terrified. And he was like, we'll probably never be an infielder. And I was like, <clears throat> balls like this like this is insanity so he actually started me in the outfield and I kind of took to it so mm -hmm. when I got to high school I was like I can also do this and they were right. like oh you're probably going to end up there because look at who we have in the infield and I was like fine by me this is all sounding really great and right. uh, 
yeah, so I ended up playing outfield. I pitched a little bit more of like a occasional starter, but mostly a reliever. It wasn't like a particularly uh, didn't throw particularly hard. Uh, I was more of a finesse control guy, uh, which isn't doesn't say much for a future in baseball. Uh, no, high school already <laughs> finesse guy. Uh, and but yeah, like that was a lot of my high school experience revolved around being in good enough shape and maintaining good enough grades to be eligible to play baseball. And Saturdays were, were for the boys. And so did, did the drinking or the partying or the smoking ever interfere with the, with the baseball or did it, when did it, when did the fun start to have any sort of consequences? So in high school, it didn't. I remember once mm -hmm. we went out on a Friday and we had a Saturday practice, but we were like, it's an afternoon practice. Rare. So let's go out. And then we went out and I was like still like a little hungover and we were like warming up for practice and like just it felt like I was going to get hurt. Perception um, <laughs> was a little bit off still. Yeah. And I didn't feel super alert and I was like, okay, no more Fridays. And everyone else was like, yeah, no more Fridays. That that practice was brutal. We didn't even condition. It was just like, we were all very like tentatively playing a very conscientious version of catch. We were just right. like, I really don't want to get hit in the face right now. I so, can't handle it. Yeah. yeah we kind of cut Fridays out. Um, and then it wasn't until community college where the negative effects really kicked in. Mm. I got, um, I wasn't recruited out of high school. So I had to like cold call coaches around the Bay area to uh, see if anyone would be interested in me coming out. And I got a bite from a coach in Redwood city, which was about 45 minutes South of San Francisco. And I moved out there. Um, I was renting a room and no longer at my parents' house. And that's kind of just when I started smoking weed every day um, mm. because I had no more parental guidance. And I still brought the same academic attitude to community college, which was I was a legal truant in high school. I barely made grades. <clears throat> I constantly worked deals to remain eligible. And I know like the stereotypes about jocks and pulling strings and getting by just to graduate or play their sport but I I pulled every lever I could I made a lot of deals with a lot of teachers and barely graduated high school so that really didn't work anymore in community college like I wasn't going to class and my lung capacity diminished and being a smaller player you really have to work a lot harder than everyone else to show that you can stick and play with the big guys. But I was like finishing running like last or second to last. Like I was really struggling physically. Um, I, I felt like smoking as much weed as I was really was having negative effects on me and physically. So mm -hmm. I, that's when I really started to notice was in community college, but instead of, um, I also had some like underlying injuries and mental health stuff going on at the time as well. Um, and I was a little bit young for, uh, I was 17 when I started college, which 
I'm like a fall baby. So mm-hmm. I wasn't emotionally intelligent enough and I wasn't really in a great place to be out on my own. And I responded pretty negatively to that. I was very lonely and isolated. I didn't really feel like a part of the team and weed was kind of taking over at that point. And I just ended up quitting and moving back home because I was in too much uh, physical pain because of a back injury I suffered my junior year. And I tore my rotator cuff completely at some point in high school. And I was in a lot of emotional pain feeling you know, removed from everything I was familiar with and uh, feeling like I wasn't fitting in in this new place and also kind of seeing my baseball dreams kind of come to an end. Um, It really was like, oh, I guess I'm not going to be in the major leagues because I can't even, I'm not going to make this community college team as a freshman. Like that is not how it goes if you're prodigiously talented. Yeah. So I think trying to cope with the reality of all that, uh, I was self-medicating with with weed and that became more important to me. That's when it kind of like overtook like everything uh, was just like, not only was I medicating with it, but I was also growing much more interested in it. Um, right. It just like a part of my personality. Almost. So when you talk about uh, the weed being the gateway drug for you, when did things shift into booze or harder stuff? Um, so around the time when I was 25 or 26. In 20, like mid 20s, I guess. Okay. Um, I um, So I started doing comedy when I was 21. I started doing stand up at 21, found something else to do. I really took to it. It was a place where it kind of fueled, not fueled, but it, it scratched a competitive itch, but it also allowed me to be creative and perform and mm-hmm. get external validation in that way. Um, and I really fell in love with doing it. I'd always been curious about trying it out. And so once I started, I was really into it. And uh, so when I was 24, 25, I was like three or four years in, and I really started to raise like level up locally basically i went from being like an open micer to like a guy that's getting shows regularly to the guy that's closing out the local shows and i didn't really have a good way of dealing with this kind of newfound i don't want to say popularity because it's if you're like a popular local comic no one knows who you are still um it's just kind of the the truth like maybe some people would like recognize me at work like hey aren't you a comedian and it's like okay but how do you want your eggs um (laughs) yes i uh but when i became like kind of a local headliner and uh you're getting paid more frequently in drink tickets Mm. uh, and honestly like having people gravitate to me after shows, whether it was to be like, Hey, can I follow you on? It was just like Twitter. Really? It wasn't really Instagram yet, but like, can I follow you on social media? Like, where are you going to be next? Like when people started actually talking to me after shows, uh, I didn't realize that I don't feel very comfortable interacting with people that much. I was very uncomfortable. And the when I realized that like 
drinking really loosens you up. Uh, I, I thought, you know, and you'll hear this in the rooms a lot. I thought that was the solution. I thought I had a solution in alcohol. And um, I felt like that was like the answer, like, oh, I'm not like uncomfortable socially. Like I just need to have a couple drinks and loosen up. And, you know, going back to all the weed usage stuff, like the second I realized like, not only like is alcohol like a powerful social lubricant, but also like you can get higher from getting drunk than you can from smoking weed. Like I didn't realize like how high you can get on alcohol. And once I started realizing that the high of being drunk far exceeded the high of being stoned, it, it was over. Like I was just like, I just, I love drinking now. Like this is so much fun. You know, I'm just like starting to order like forget the soda, just put ice in the whiskey and give it to me. Like, that's all I need. I'll just like have a sip and make a wretched face and then mm -hmm. I'll, be but I'll get used to it. It's kind of like a black coffee thing where it's yep. just like, I don't know why anyone does this. But then after a while, you're just like, oh, you just take small controlled sips and it's fine. Mm -hmm. uh, so once I really got like the taste for whiskey and the, like my palate, became desensitized to actually how gross alcohol tastes and I got a little taste of local fame it that was like the accelerant that set the whole thing on fire um it was really bad um I because then I was running my own shows too and part of the deal of running your own show is like yeah you'll get like a little bit of a cut of the bar sales during the show or they'll like hand you a bunch of drink tickets. And once you give out two to each comic, I still have a handful of drink tickets. Or if they did well and the bartenders like you, they're just sliding you drinks. Right. Um, or like <clears throat> come in on an off night and the owner's there and he's like, hey, I heard the show was great. Like whatever you want, like we're slow, but like just, you know, make yourself comfortable. So I kind of have like an open tab at some places or I just had free access to alcohol in a bar. So I could like go to these bars where I knew the bartenders and I was a food service person. So I knew a lot of people in the industry and that was kind of my network was just comics who also worked in the service industry, other servers, bartenders, bartenders at places I performed before. So I would kind of just like found I had a watering hole in San Francisco wherever I went and I would usually get some kind of deal and yeah it really that's where things like really started to escalate and that's when I really started to find my dependence on on alcohol both socially and psychologically to really start to evolve yeah and San Francisco has no shortage of dark little bars and cuts and taverns and I mean I've I don't live that far from there now. And I remember when I, when I was drinking, I, there would be trips down there and it was just always exciting to go to some new weird little place. And, and again, I, I was a bartender for 12 plus years and I think it was easy access to the booze, free and easy access. And you're like, this is great. Yeah, but absolutely. it also was like, I was constantly hung over. Mm -hmm. I was constantly like 
we talked about before planning my days and my nights and nights off about where we're going to go and how we're going to get this and what I was going to take home and what I was going to drink at work and how much I was going to drink every single hour I could have or every 40 minutes I could have a shot and that would keep me even keel and then I wouldn't be drunk I would just be normal yeah right yeah sure (laughs) and like I was a little different in that regard where I kind of felt like I had some control over my drinking if I punished myself by not drinking during the day and then waited until everything was done to start drinking. So Mm -hmm. I would be terribly hungover at work, like shaking, reeking, you know, that feeling when you're like kind of being electrocuted, like it's just, you feel like your, your neural pathways are just so messed up and just, there's no good brain juice flowing anywhere. Mm -hmm. It's just poison, poison, poison. And, um, I just couldn't like, I, I didn't want to like admit anything about alcoholism and frankly, didn't know enough about alcoholism at the time or think of it as an option because that's kind of what everyone else was doing. We kind of, we do glorify it in comedy and a lot of our heroes were like that. Um, and you know, I don't think like imitating your heroes is something that goes away once you're not a child anymore. Mm. Um, I felt like that's kind of what I had to be to be like a true comic. I had to live the life. So that was part of it too. And I, I just really like, I lost jobs, you know, I would show up like, I just miss shifts sometimes. I, but it was more, I was so invested in comedy that I was like, well, I'm not going to be waiting tables forever. So I need to take this show. I need to hang out and schmooze and drink after and uh, networking. If I get home at three and I have to turn around and open the restaurant at nine 30, I'll figure it out. Um, And yeah, it's just like, there was this like moment where like, comedy and alcohol really became inextricably intertwined for me and then uh I also feel like there was this point where I let comedy or being a comic or my perception of what I thought like a genuine artist was really like this is what I have to do like I have to feel bad all the time I have to suffer or else I'm not going to be funny or relatable or I have to like really put myself through hell for my art um and I just think it was an unhealthy relationship with comedy and I really had an unhealthy way of dealing with any sorts of feelings of anxiety or fear of rejection or failure like you know I drank because I was just scared of being myself and I was scared of um the huge investment I was making in this career and, and not seeing it pay off. Yeah. Oh, you know, I think that those were kind of the driving forces. And also I was scared of being alone and being a kind of popular local guy, like people gravitated towards me, whether it was other comics or potential sexual partners, which was a whole other thing too, where it was like, you know, people were actually talking to me interested in like hooking up because they saw me perform and thought that was very attractive, uh, which I had always peripherally hoped would be a thing. Um, but the reality of it becoming a thing was something that I was like, well, I like, this is scary. 
so I'm going to have to keep drinking so I can continue this conversation with any sort of confidence. But it's also like, you know, fear around sex and stuff and like, oh, well, it's going to be bad if I'm not drunk. I have to be drunk to be good and uninhibited and stuff. And it just bled all over the place. It's just like, you know, I spilled the bottle on the carpet and the carpet is just soaked and I don't have any paper towels. Right. <clears throat> um, how long did this go on for? When was the uh, when was the breaking point? I got sober when I was 29. So I uh, still drank a lot and then uh, moved to L.A. when I was 27. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of a mistake. Um, I wasn't really ready professionally. And I wasn't ready personally, uh, but, you know, San Francisco is my hometown and every kid kind of has to leave their hometown. And I really wanted to move to New York, but L.A. was just more convenient and cheaper. Uh, the move just seemed to make more sense. But I found myself to feel really uh, pressed to fit in there. I was no longer like a big fish in a small pond. Uh, and there's a lot of cool people in LA and there's like a lot of people that are like, and I hate to say it are like kind of important to know and be cool with. And the whole networking element, I really wasn't good at or prepared for. And of course, like what helped me feel more comfortable socially was drinking and doing other types of alcohol, as they say. Um, I got into Coke like right before I left San Francisco. Um, I, never did it before never had any interest and then one day i was like man i'm so tired and my friend was like you really need to try coke and i was like you know what you win and then i was like well if i don't buy it i'm cool mm -hmm. then i got down to la and it was much more of a a casual thing down there right. and it also i just felt like i wanted to keep up with everyone and um and I was afraid. I was afraid of not being accepted and not being talented enough and kind of being in the the land of dreamers and ending up being one of the delusional. That really scared me. So I thought if I endeared myself to a cool crowd of drinkers and users, um, and I don't mean that in any negative way, because I think that those people probably have much different relationships with drugs and alcohol than I did. And their reactions are different, but the people that I wanted to think I was cool drank and used, and I didn't drink and use in the same way they did because it seemed like they were having fun and getting along. And I was having fun and getting along, but I never felt like I fit in. And I felt like everything was just a <clears throat> maneuver to try to fit in. And, you know, going towards like more AA and fourth step kind of stuff. A lot of my use and my networking kind of ambition was really self-seeking and kind of dishonest. I don't really know if I genuinely wanted friendships with these people. I think I just wanted to advance my career. Sure. And sure. Uh, the self-seeking element, um, I think, got numbed by me using to where I didn't have to think about any of those it was just i'm here hamilton just came out and all these people are listening to the soundtrack at this party and they're going nuts and 
I feel very uncomfortable, but at least there's a table with Coke on it and I can fit in that way. I'm not yeah. Hamilton, but you know, a lot of theater kids end up in comedy and a lot of these comedy people are actors slash theater people. So this is what I have to do to survive this party and so be it. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that, isn't that a trip? You like you, you, there's those two layers. There's the, I'm having fun and it's a blast. And then there's the, I have to survive this party. And there's always, because I've had this argument with friends of mine who have quit drinking and, you know, we talk about the past and there were some really, really good times. There were some genuinely fun times. Ultimately for me though, there was always that like underlying sadness, depression, frustration, ambitions, not being actualized and stuff like that. Um, and there's always that sort of like secret little world in your head. Like you said, I have to make it through this party. I have to, I have to survive and I have to fit in somehow. And, you know, it's, it can be very, very difficult and challenging. Um, so that's, that's Los Angeles. When, um, when do you ultimately say enough is enough and let it go? So I basically, I was, I have clinical depression uh, and I have OCD and I got diagnosed with OCD when I was like 25 or 26. Mm -hmm. So I got diagnosed pretty late. And I also think that kind of triggered some additional drinking and uh, feelings of like, man, is my whole life just a series of compulsions that I acted upon because I obsessed over them and I didn't even realize like I had this disorder. Um, I'd always been kind of depressed though. Uh, but that was like kind of a, it was more a symptom of my OCD than actually what I was dealing with. So I was really unhappy with how things were going in LA and, um, I was also just like having bad relationships in comedy, like just nothing was really working out. And I knew my drinking had led to some behaviors that were frankly unacceptable. Um, and I kind of thought like, man, like my career is like in the trash. Like I've totally like sabotaged myself just from being a drunken, entitled fool. Um, so I was going to kill myself. And uh, a few months before that, a couple of my friends had attempted to intervene with me. Um, and it didn't take, I really was like, it was like a good warning sign, like, okay, I need to chill out, but I can't stop. Um, but then like when I, decided that I was didn't want to be here anymore another friend reached out to me and was like this really is not a good uh reaction to what's going on in your life it's uh and I think you're an alcoholic uh because this sounds like an alcoholic solution they had some time sober too um mm -hmm. they were just like so don't do what you're planning on doing how about you wait for our friend who is also in the program, just sleep, sleep on this and go to a meeting with him tomorrow. And uh, that was February 19th, uh, 2017. 
February 20th, I waited for my friend. We went to a meeting um, and the speaker there, she was telling my story. Uh, just she was a visual artist and not a comedian. That was really the only difference I heard in, in what she was sharing. Um, and it that was the first time I realized that I was an alcoholic and that what I was dealing with and how I was feeling was not uncommon at all. Um, and how I was trying to deal with it wasn't uncommon either. Um, so yeah, I'd been sober ever since. Um, so that was, that's when it changed because it wasn't so much, um, it's hard to explain. In the beginning, it, it, to be honest, it, it was kind of like PR. Uh, I had been aware that I had like done a lot of damage to my reputation of kind of being unreliable and self-seeking and kind of an asshole. And uh, I really just was like, well, maybe I can like, if I get some time sober that I can clear my name a little bit and like, yeah. clean up my reputation. I, I really didn't have very sincere motives in getting sober. Um, mm -hmm. I still was very self-seeking in that but I felt like it was, there were two things that were definitely true was like, this was the only way that I'm going to survive. And I know for sure I am an alcoholic. How I deal with that is going to change over time. Um, but those were two things that I, I knew as facts, regardless of if I was a little bit disingenuous in the beginning of my sobriety, uh, I'm still sober and I've been sober since that day. And I actually am one of those rare people that I went to AA for like 60 days. I got a sponsor, started working the steps, but I really just didn't like AA. I wasn't ready for it at the time. I didn't feel a part of that community really either. Um, and therapy was really helpful. I started going to therapy and I felt like that carried a little bit more weight for me at the time. Mm -hmm. I didn't go to AA anymore. I just focused on therapy. And um, and I was kind of dry, but kind of not. Therapy was really helping me, but I did have my dry patches, that's for sure. And then um, I moved out of LA at the end of 2019, uh, because in that time of kind of trying to like, repair my reputation and stuff I was kind of also realizing like I don't really want to wait tables anymore I really started like kind of reconnecting with baseball mm -hmm. um started getting some freelance writing opportunities around baseball and I took an interest in volunteer coaching because I knew that my therapist recommended like maybe trying to volunteer somewhere will kind of help you take your mind off yourself and yeah. you know help you remain sober in a healthy way uh being of service and uh but this was you know before I got back into the rooms and um when I started volunteer coaching I really fell in love with the idea of uh of helping young people 
play baseball or have access to baseball equipment, I kind of got like a new mission and I got really wrapped up in that and stand-up didn't seem very important. So I kind of ran out my show calendar in LA. I decided I wanted to go to grad school because I wanted to change my baseline employment to something recreation related and hopefully baseball. I was volunteer coaching at LA high school for the spring. And I was like, yeah, I think I want to go back to school, get my master's and like help, help kids in cities have access to sports because I grew up in a big under-resourced city and an under-resourced community as an under-resourced child. Like I grew up in the parks and rec baseball system. And then mm -hmm. when I went to public high school, like we didn't have much. Um, and then when I got to coaching at a public high school, I was like, they have less, this got worse. Like I, I don't like this. I want to change this. So a lot of my psychic energy converted to that. And I didn't really care that much about comedy anymore. So I decided I wanted to get out of California completely as well, because I spent my whole life there. I wanted to go back to school. I needed to do something different. And I <clears throat> wanted to go to school on the East Coast as well. My parents relocated to Savannah a few years ago, so I decided to go stay with them and figure out my grad school stuff and save some money. And that I got to Savannah January 3rd of 2020. And then when I was out there, I was like, well, I don't have to work really because I'm not worrying about rent. I saved a lot of money uh, working and not doing shows and touring and stuff. So maybe I'll do some open mics and see what it's like in Savannah. And it's a small scene, but I also didn't really have any social skills. And I had some time sober. I had been sober for a few years at that point. <clears throat> And uh, started doing comedy again, and it was fun. And I started touring around the South and was having a great time. And I was like, I think I could make all this work. And then COVID hit. And my dad, who I mentioned, has an autoimmune disorder, is a high-risk person. And I was trapped in the house for seven months. <laughs> and uh, really undid a lot of my progress in therapy. And uh, But I didn't pick up. But I didn't have any spiritual grounding uh, anymore. You right. Know? Okay, so I didn't I was out of network no more therapists and uh I was just kind of sitting around watching I still don't think that I fully uh have processed how scary the beginning of COVID was I thought it was like not a hoax but I was like ah, it's the flu and then thousands of people started dying and I was, thought it was a mass extinction event. I'm not kidding. I really thought like this was it for the human race or a good lot of them. I mean, yeah. And, um, it was scary. And I was just very conscientious of keeping my dad alive. So I didn't, yeah. my mom works at a hospital. So like, it was just very stressful sitting in the house with my parents for seven months my mom going back and forth to work still and just trying to keep my dad away from doing anything dangerous while also not putting myself in a position that would endanger my dad. Um, so I just spent seven months thinking about grad school and worrying about not killing my dad. Um, and then I, you know, long story short, I ended up in Philadelphia for grad school. I moved up here 
uh, August 2020, started grad school, it was still COVID. So I moved up here because I got a job with the school. And, uh, but I was able to do interns and, sh and stuff that like were in line with what I wanted to do professionally. And I still didn't have, without therapy, I didn't have that spiritual grounding. And I started feeling really dry. And I didn't know that I was dry. And then I started dating someone who was sober and had time in the program and was like, you are the driest person I've ever met. Uh, I can't believe you're still sober. Please go to a meeting. It's different here in Philadelphia. Don't take your prejudices from your other experience and bring them here. Philly's right. Cool. We're cool, man. Just go. Yeah. And I went and I was really jealous of her because she was happy, joyous, and free. Uh, she was always on the phone with someone whenever I would like get to her house. Um, she'd be talking to someone. Her sponsor like loved and cared about her and that was reciprocated. And she had a solid network of sober people around her that kept her grounded and kept her in check. And she just really built a nice community for herself. And I was so jealous. But then when I got in the rooms and saw how recovery focused things were out here. Um, and, you know, maybe my perception at the time was warped about the recovery in LA because I'm a San Franciscan and I'm just programmed to not like anything about LA anyway. But it felt like something could happen if I just started to buy into it. Because I remember once she was trying to convince me to go to meetings and I was like, it sounds like you're in a cult. And she was like, you know, people say that to me a lot, but I'm happy in my cult. And I was like, yeah, actually. You are happy. Like, yeah, you're such a happy person. And you have so many people that aren't your family <clears throat> that love you around you. I am so jealous. I want I what they have. Yeah, I think part of it, too, is that we often um, and again, I don't think that it's a program for everyone. I know some people who are very happy and sober twice as long as I have been more so and have not stepped foot in a room or, you know, dealt with the, the program. I think what happens is the stigma comes from people who it comes from people, not from the program. And so we get caught up with the wrong people who either have their own self-seeking motivations within these programs of recovery. And so not every single room, not every single meeting, not every single person is going to be the same. And it, it's just a matter of um, finding people just not just in recovery, but people that you connect with as a person, as an artist okay. or as a whatever the thing is, you're like, wow, I really get along with this person, not just because we both wanted to destroy ourselves with booze, but yeah. you know, there are other things as well. And so I think if we let go a little bit from the, oh, I met this person in AA and I really didn't like them. So the whole thing is fucked. Yeah. <laughs> if we let go of that and you go, oh, okay. Um, yeah. I didn't really, I didn't really get along with that person, but this other person, they're great. I'm going to go hang out with them. Yeah. You know? Um, and that's the thing too, is I brought a lot of prejudice with me 
but then when I started because you know like they say like oh if you hang around at, at the barber long enough you're gonna get a haircut yes but, I've heard that one too many times yes yeah but the other side of that is if you keep going to AA meetings you're gonna start hearing stuff you like and that mm -hmm. you hear and I just kept going because I was so jealous of my ex um obviously like things didn't work out between us romantically mm -hmm. but I'm I'm so grateful for her suggestion yeah because yeah. uh there are times where I am catapulted into the fourth dimension uh and that is through the program and through fellowship uh because and what would a drinking podcast be without talking about sex and sexuality mm -hmm. I'm a very horny dude and um I feel like a lot of my drinking was so I could feel confident enough to put myself out there to get laid yeah um, and I think that I in that process I never really developed since high school I never really developed strong male friendships mm -hmm. because what superseded all that for me was romantic pursuits and also like self-exploration I wasn't I'm not like a straight person and mm -hmm. I fall somewhere on the spectrum mm -hmm. uh, and that was something that I had a hard time coming to terms with too so that was something that also fueled me to drink was like I drank so I can experiment or feel comfortable experiment and and hide the shame uh yeah didn't I'll deal with the shame tomorrow but tonight like I really don't know who I am and this allows me to at least try to be who I think I am uh, I get to test that hypothesis though. Right. And so like when you bring up all the different groups of people, like my home group is like a group that is full of young people around my age that are all like super chill, different walks of life, but all really cool, like Philadelphia, cool people. And then I also go to an artist meeting. That's just like kind of an off book meeting for artists whether they're visual artists or musicians so and then I go to like queer meetings pretty regularly too so like there are those little cubbies in in the umbrella of the program that you can put yourself in and I'm really glad that I found my way into the program because the social part of it has been really spiritually healing and enriching for me but once I also started to buy into the actual plan of action, the design for life. Once I started to buy into doing those things and not being so intellectually stubborn and resistant to something that seems to really work for a lot of people, um, I felt the spiritual shift start to occur. Um, and I started going back to AA in September. Um, so it's been almost a year of working the program. I'm in the process of doing my first fourth step um I've never done the steps before but I've been sober all this time right the first time where I feel like I'm truly sober and I'm like emotionally and spiritually sober as well like I had never been able to really scratch the surface of those things because I really didn't have a design for living and the suggestions that are laid out in the program are suggestive but 
my own suggestions to myself suck. And they resulted in me becoming yeah. alcoholic that was not seeing people as people, but seeing people as currency or validation or some external thing that I want. Some resource to be exploited. Exactly. For personal and, gain. And I did bad things to good people or I got involved with other bad people and we were just all bad together. But like I, and it, you know, no one's a saint in the program. And I don't think that doing this stuff absolves me from anything that I've ever done. But at the same time, like this program has given something back to me that I never thought I'd find again. I do yeah. feel moments like of reprieve where I can enjoy things and be present. It's not all the time. It's still 95% of the time tough sledding. But 5% is way more than 0%, which is what I experienced a lot when I was like kind of in these dry periods. And it's it's a process and I really embrace the process. I also go to therapy, which I strongly advise anyone with the resources to do to yeah. do it. Um, and to take that as seriously as you take the program, be that blunt, you know, be that, you know, progress oriented when mm -hmm. you carry those principles into all your affairs. Um, it's all there, man. It's all right there. And it's, um, I was working with a, with a gentleman and he was having some, uh, we were just discussing things and the, the the thing that came out, he was having some resistance, right? As we all do, as we all have every single person I've ever known, Well, not every single person, but most people have resistance to this. And he was, he was grabbing the book and he's like, this is like a philosophy book. And I was like, that's great. That's exactly what it is. So you know what? Let's just take every, even if you took out every single mention of alcohol, and let's just say, let's take out every single mention of God, because that's usually where the resistance lies, right? Just throw them away and put in whatever you need to fix, put in whatever you need to feel better about, put in whatever is bothering you today. <clears throat> There's going to be some sort of useful information in there for you. Yeah. Maybe a lot, probably more than, you know, than a little, but um. so, I, and that's kind of one of the things that I always try to impart to people who are skeptical or suspicious and i'm like yeah let's be suspicious let's figure it out you know but yeah. um like that is uh one thing i guess that's really surprised me the most about going into the text with my sponsor is uh you know i have a i have a master's so i'm like something of an academic and he's also very educated and we do kind of have these more academic kind mm -hmm. of analyses of the book and I think like there's a couple of things that really got me past the God thing. Um, I grew up atheist in San Francisco. There was not even a notion of God in my household growing up. Um, and they refer to it a lot as like, we don't like really talk about like capital G God. It's lowercase G. It's just like a word we use. That's a catch all for the things we can't explain. And that made it a little bit more digestible but mm -hmm. if you really need to remove that word, um, just remove it. Like, just change, just higher power. Like, that could just, it could be as general as that. Just substitute yeah. it 
like because the if the god thing is really like what is going to trip you up then like it really so i said this in a meeting the other day so i'm sorry i'm recycling material on you but this is something that after i said it i was like that's not bad i think i'm going to keep that please i'm not a good architect every time i build a structure it collapses in on itself and now that i'm in aa and i have a sponsor and i have other men who i'm not trying to have sex with in my network that can kind of advise me and kind of look at the structure and tell me like how am I building this wrong? And they're just like, well, have you thought about like not using such shitty supplies? Maybe, mm -hmm. you know, find a different supplier for, you know, your materials. And also like, maybe just like, don't try to control every aspect of this all the time. Like step aside, just like follow the design and, you know, let other people in on the, the building of the structure and for me that does include lowercase g god there are things out there i can explain um and i don't i can't pretend to know more than i do anymore yeah. i think my ego drove me to extraordinarily terrible lengths that i know that my decision making and my thought processes got me in a really bad place and so, hey, throwing in the towel, I guess, I'm ready to turn it over to God or whatever. And frankly, if you need to say God or whatever, every time you see God in the big book, so be it. Like throw in or whatever, <laughs> like whatever you yeah. need to, do to get to the program part of it, because the program part is what I think unleashes the spiritual part. Um, I think when you are being of service to other people, just the intrinsic value of helping other people is much more healing than any work you can really do on yourself. Uh, and I think that being in gratitude, uh, I wake up and I pray every morning, which is so lame. It is so lame on the surface. You know, I, I don't even uh -huh. tell people that outside of AA because I don't, I know what it sounds like. Right, yeah. I wake up and I thank God that I woke up again and I'm still sober. And you know what? I hope the people in my extended network of addicts are also waking up sober today. And like waking up and putting myself in a place of gratitude every day has completely changed how my days go. Even when they're bad, I can still pause and be like, you know what? Like, this is not going the way I want it to, but obviously this is going some way it's supposed to go. And I just need to step aside and accept that and try to maneuver around it the best I can, like talking in between a siren. It's just a matter That's of yeah. being present and trying to get around the siren noise when you think you're making a good point about something on a podcast. Yeah, well, it, you and you you make a lot of good points there. I mean, as far as service goes, whether it be in recovery or whether it be on the baseball field, it doesn't really yeah. matter. I mean, whatever whatever you can find. And um, you also remind me that it's time for me to get back to going to meetings on a regular basis too, because it's been a while. And I think that that's that's something that 
you know, I always want to think that I can get away with not showing up or only showing up a few times, but that's where you find those people that actually, that actually do give a shit about you and are yeah. actually interested in, in what, in how you're doing. Yeah. I think like letting my guard down and putting my hand up and sharing where I'm at, mm -hmm. uh, whether it's because I'm having a difficult time or because I'm having a good time, I, and I keep showing, I have my regular meetings. Like mm -hmm. I will not miss my Monday meeting. I try not to miss my Wednesday meeting or my Saturday meeting. Like I have my staple meetings mm -hmm. and it's just familiarity there. People are just as uncomfortable. We're all learning how to re-socialize ourselves without alcohol. That's yeah. why like picking up the phone is always such a weird thing. And why I'm so grateful that I have friends in this program that I can call and be like, hey, this is still super fucking weird for me. And he's like, dude, I've been doing this for years. And every time my phone rings, I'm like glad it's another alcoholic. But at the same time, it's just, man, this is so weird. It doesn't mm -hmm. get not weird. But just to know we're all sharing in that weirdness, but we're all trying to recalibrate ourselves to ask for help, because I found myself in a little bit of a bind a couple of weeks ago and called my sponsor and he was he gave me his advice and he told me to call somebody else and I got his advice like I asked for help and I got help and it it relieved me, you know, and I think that getting in the habit of like getting on the phone and talking to, to other people in the program is super helpful and they take a genuine interest in your life once you kind of cross open yourself up to them familiarity where it's like yeah. see this guy every week he shares every other week and he really i like i care about him now like if he's not at the meeting and maybe this is my ego talking a little bit but I, it's just because i'm projecting how i feel about certain people like if i don't see someone at one of my regular meetings the next week, I think about them. Mm -hmm. I'm like, where did they sure. go? I hope they're okay. Maybe sure. they're on vacation. But then the next week when they come back, hey, I missed you at the meeting last week. Like, yeah, everything's good. Like, I really feel that sense of community developing. And that's, I think, been a big missing chunk of my spiritual life. Yeah. And it's not transactional uh, because all we're here to do is to like, carry the message and i know that this got really aa heavy okay um, maybe a little bit yes but at the same time like that is that's where i'm at yeah and i hope like if if this is helping anyone that's on the fence about it because i know i didn't have a conventional linear path into the rooms mm -hmm. and i know for sure that there's other people out there that have reservations or that you know maybe they're on their own non-linear path but once I got back in the rooms, things really started to change. And I feel like that four year period of not being in the program is really made it work coming yeah. back. So it meant something. And I also do find myself sometimes in a little bit of like something I'm learning is to not be judgmental of people that are sober by other methods. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, from my experience, like being, sober not in program didn't work great for me but that's just me and if your program is working for you then that's great but just know like there's always the rooms and there's always this program that's been around since the 30s and it's pretty effective 
And yeah. if it can if it can work for a godless San Franciscan, then you know, <laughs> like it's been a it's been interesting finding God through this program or whatever my my conception. Yeah, yeah, my power, my higher power is just knowing there's a fourth dimension, and mm -hmm. that I'm doing the right things, I can be catapulted into that every so once I, in a while, right? And maybe not I, all the time, but I'm yeah, constantly just trying to get on that slingshot into the fourth dimension, trebuchet um, into the fourth dimension, even. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, Jules, thank you so much. Yeah, even I, even I, if it gets a little bit AA, that's fine. We're 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 cool with that. We're cool. totally cool and with that. Uh, um. I appreciate you sharing your story and talking with me. And it's always a good reminder of where I need to be and where my, when I'm feeling those irritable, restless and discontent feelings where I need to go sure. to absolve myself of them. So, and I'm just, uh, I'm glad to be of service, you know, and Thank you. Uh, really, I hope, I hope this helps someone. If it yes. helps one person, uh, that's pretty cool. It helped me. <laughs> so it's a good start, right? All right. I guess uh, I guess my work here is done. I'm going to go All right, Jules. feral kitten. Nice. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks again for listening. Our music, as always, is by Neglect. You can find more of his stuff at neglect.bandcamp.com. And you can find us on all social media platforms that matter. Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And you can reach us at aisforalcoholic at gmail.com. Talk to you later. Yeah. <laughs>